Episode 42, Why There is Suffering in This World and Why Getting Mad at God About It is Foolish. Rethinking the Bible with Jack Pelham. Welcome to Rethinking the Bible. This is an audio podcast where we apply reality-based thinking to interpreting the Bible. Reality-based thinking is my name for a philosophy that seeks to make constant use of honesty, rationality, and responsibility in seeking out the reality of things while trying to avoid common errors. And for the record, I define reality as the state of things as they actually exist, as opposed to one's perceptions, beliefs, or wishes about them. And you should know, this is a serial podcast, so it's best if you start from episode one and work your way forward from there, because we lay some foundational principles up front, and you'll be lost later if you skip them now. It seems like it's been forever since I recorded an episode last. I'm afraid to find out how long it has been, uh, but I'm back at it today. I have been very busy with all kinds of projects, and I'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, the title of today, again, is Why There is Suffering in This World and Why Getting Mad at God About It is Foolish. And this is a huge topic. I, I've been wanting for many weeks to talk about this, and I'll tell you some more about that. But the long title of today, in case you should be interested in that, uh, (laughs) strap yourselves in. Here we go. The long title, How God Planned This World to Be a Test for Humans, Who Could Go On to the Eternal Heavenly Jerusalem If They Did Well, Uh, How Not All of the Peace and Harmony Promised in the Bible Was for Their Immediate Fulfillment, But for Eternity in Heaven, How We Are Supposed to Be Able to Overcome Evil in This World, having the spiritual roots to withstand the troubles here, how Jesus was a special case with God always listening to him and interacting with him, but how even Jesus was ignored on one occasion, and how maybe we shouldn't expect that God is going to be directly and responsibly involved in everything that we go through here on planet Earth, and how sin is not the only reason that God might not respond to your prayers. So there's a mouthful not sure if you could follow all that or not, but uh, feel free to rewind and replay it as many times as you want. Obviously, you don't have to because I'm going to spill all that out in this episode. <clears throat> I don't know whether this episode will uh, be a one part or two parts. It could get lengthy, but I was determined today to get something down regardless. So this all started a few weeks ago um, or started anew with me when watching an episode of the Waltons with my wife. We were in episode six or season six, number 11, I think called the children's carol. And the story is about uh, two kids who came over from England during the Blitzkrieg, during the bombings of London. And uh, many kids then were shipped off to safer places to live. It was a, a terrible time, obviously. And so um, two of these kids found their way to Walton's mountain and they're uh, staying with the Baldwin sisters and then uh, somewhat with the Waltons. 
and they're trying to get through to these kids who had been a, been a bit traumatized and such. Well, Olivia, uh, the Walton mother, she sort of breaks down at some point, and I really wanted to find a transcript of this and could not find it, and I cannot wait until it airs again uh, for free on whatever that is we watch it on. Uh, so I'm just going to have to wing it here. But she basically got upset at God because of this kind of suffering in the world. Why doesn't God stop this? Well, this is nothing new. This is not unique to that Walton's episode. Many, many people have had this kind of struggle, this kind of uh, misunderstanding about, or that's what I think it is, a misunderstanding of what this world is about and why there is trouble here. And there is a ton to be thought through about this, but um, I've realized my position that I've developed over the years is quite different from the ordinary position. So here's something uh, today for you to think about. You may think I'm an idiot or um, a heretic. (laughs) Wouldn't be the first time I've been accused of that. But as I'm thinking through, I think we need some better explanations than what you might tend to hear at the typical church about these things. And so um, that's what we're going to talk about today. And there's so many pieces to this puzzle. I, I hope to make it easy enough to follow. But I'd like to start with an excerpt from Northrop Fry, who was a literary theorist. Uh, from Canada, and he died, I believe, in 1991, just to give you some idea of this time setting of his life. So he's going to talk about the first chapter of Genesis and how people interpret that. And it's two paragraphs here I'm going to read. So settle in, um, and then I'll I'll tell you what it is about this uh, quotation that I wanted to bring out. Fry wrote this. We are told that in the account of the first chapter of Genesis that God made something and then saw that it was good. As Bernard Shaw says in one of his essays, what would he say now? The question is, of course, that he would say, according to the traditional Christian interpretation, this is not the world I made. This is the world you fell into, and it's all your fault, and not the least little bit my fault. See Paradise Lost, books 1 through 12, uh, he says. And he goes on. Now, obviously, we can only get to that interpretation by doing a certain violence to the biblical account. For one thing, it is traditional, you'll find it in Paradise Lost as well as elsewhere, that everything, and here's the part I really wanted to bring up, that everything we find inconvenient in nature, from mosquitoes to earthquakes, is the result of a fall in nature which accompanied or was part of the original fall of man. And that's the sentence I wanted to highlight. But he goes on just a bit more. But that is, of course, pure reconstruction. There was nothing about a fall of nature in Genesis. It is said that God cursed the ground, but he removed the curse before the flood. So that doesn't count either. And again, this is from Northrop Fry, lecture number 15, called The Bible and Literature, January 13, 1981. And so uh, Fry is pointing out a thing uh, that is very commonly held, but he says not well supported. And I agree with him. Uh, some people will try to assign everything bad that happens. Oh, I've got a headache. Oh, I got a flat tire. 
Oh, inflation. Oh, you know, whatever. They want to ascribe it all to, you know, the fall, dun, 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 and make this huge event out of it that is really not um, as well supported from the Bible as they might think that it is. And so, you know, even this question comes up. Okay, so let's say uh, that God puts Adam and Eve in this perfect world. Let's say that uh, when it says, and God saw that it was good, or that it was very good a little later on, Let's say that what that means is God saw was absolutely flawless and perfect in every way, and nobody could wish for any improvement on it because it was just beyond impeccable in the qualities of it. Let's say that, that it means that. Well, then, how do you explain how this serpent shows up in the garden with Adam and Eve? And how do you explain that... Uh, some sort of communication error had already gone wrong or some sort of thinking error when um, they are told, hey, don't um, eat this fruit from this particular tree. But the way that Eve sees it is, or the way she said, uh, was don't even touch it or you will die. Right? So something went wrong there before they ever ate of the fruit. So how do you explain that? if this world was flawless in every possible way and nothing could go wrong with it. In fact, how do you explain that something did go wrong with it? Uh, a lot of people will, will say that people's sin today is because we're fallen, we're of a lower nature than Adam and Eve. Oh, well, how then did Adam and Eve manage to sin being of a higher nature? Did they have to really work at it hard? You know, you don't get that sense that they set out to rebel they were just doing their own thing, right? So uh, we're going to plot against God and find some way to do other than what he said, and that'll show God, right? I don't get the sense that it was that kind of rebellion. I think it was people not paying careful enough attention to the situation and to the details. I don't mean to say it was an accident. I think they did it on purpose. However, here you have people that were supposedly perfectly made, as some might tell you, and I disagree, of course, but they're making this wrong choice. So how do you explain that? I don't think, and God saw that it was good, or and God saw that it was very good, can rightly be interpreted in that way. Uh, so uh, the question, one of the questions is, and I hope I'm not, not going to jump around too much here, but one of the questions is this. Should we expect in this world to have trouble? Remember, Adam and Eve were put in the garden, it says, to take care of it, to tend the ground, and this sort of thing. Oh, well, why should that be? Wouldn't a perfect world be uh, have no need of that? Shouldn't all the fruit just be hanging on the tree, ready to pick? Uh, and then, of course, the seeds in it, you have to spit those out, right? I have to eat it myself. It doesn't magically work its way into my stomach, right? So there was work to be done, not only tending the food, but uh, gathering it and cleaning and preparing, whatever. These things are ordinary to us even today. So uh, what was the nature of their place in this world? Uh, secondly, they were put in a situation. Do you think that God did not know that that serpent was there? Was God surprised? Or was this part of his plan? Well, I think it's totally part of the plan. I think God knew for a fact that they were going to be harassed by the serpent. And yet he put them there anyway. 
And a lot of people don't know what to make of that, so they just don't think about it. <laughs> but I think we need to think about it, you know, especially in a podcast called um, Rethinking the Bible. So uh, let me throw out some, some short passages to you uh, to get your attention on this matter. Uh, John 16, Jesus is talking at the Last Supper to his apostles. He said this to them, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So here he's telling his apostles that they would have a hard time. And they were to be able to have some manner of peace about it, internally at least, and yet in this world you will have tribulation, he says. So uh, he did not guarantee uh, them a life without tribulation. This was not his idea of what was going to be the good and rightful thing. No, he told them, you're going to have it. Uh, in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, uh, how about this one? Con count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, I wanted to get to this one quickly because it's this idea that, wait a minute, the stuff you have to go through here has a purpose. And what is the purpose? Well, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This idea of perfection is the idea of being matured, being all that you were created to be. It's not the idea of being flawless in every way. And so... Uh, we know the difference between a mature person and an immature person, uh, especially if you start looking at two-year-olds. You can tell, well, they don't speak well. They don't walk well yet. Uh, in many cases, they don't handle situations well. They don't handle their emotions well. There's so much that can yet be uh, matured about them. And so uh, the idea here is that the believers were supposed to become mature, uh, you know, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And this, of course, is a lot of what I spend my time doing, uh, helping people to become mature and complete in various ways, like with singing or acting or things like this, help them gain that those basic skills that are needed and to master those skills so that they're not lacking. And so to me, this is, um, this is the business of my weekly life. I am constantly thinking about how to help people do their best. And so the idea here is something like that. And James is telling them that when you meet trials, uh, that's good for you. You be steadfast in those because it's supposed to have, quote, a full effect. Think about that. It's on purpose. First uh, Peter 4, Peter says something to them. Listen to this. In verse 12, Dear friends, do not to be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Let me just stop right there. You know, they were going through hard times. You can read more about it if you want. And yet he says, there's nothing strange going on here. These things happening to test you. He describes them as fiery. So these are not some, you know, trivial matters. This is some difficult times that they were going through at that period when he wrote. And apparently some of them are thinking that, you know, what, what's going on? What's wrong? This shouldn't be happening. This isn't right. 
you know, the world shouldn't be like this, and which reminds me of the Olivia Walton objection to God. But he makes it clear that this is not strange. This is how it's supposed to be here. He goes on, but rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Notice when that overjoyed happens, it wasn't at this moment. He wasn't expecting them to be giddy as they're being persecuted by people or having their houses burned down or or being murdered or whatever. No, those are serious things. Those are not things to be enjoyed. But the joy was to come later when the glory of Jesus was revealed to these people. So he goes on, if you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. Uh, Do you feel blessed? No. But you are uh, in the grander sense of things, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, uh, but praise God that you bear that name. So there's a real sense here that this is going to pay off later. And uh, this is not novel, what he's telling them. Uh, this, this kind of message is throughout the Bible. In 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 6, listen to this. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you may have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining, listen to this, the outcome of your faith, comma, the salvation of your souls. Are you starting to get the picture that the difficulties they were going through seem to have been quite deliberate? God had them here that they could have their souls saved. There was some outcome of going through these things. Uh, Previously, it called it, uh, you know, grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, uh, you know, could be seen. And so this idea of testing, and they wanted to find out who was genuine and who was not. You know, who wanted to find this out? Uh, God. He was going to let it be shown what kind of people they were. Now, there's a lot of talk in the Bible about people being rescued from their trials, and that is surely an attractive idea to us. Uh, 2 Peter 2, for example, verse 9. Let me just snatch this little little phrase out of a line. Uh, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Well, yeah, of course he does. Uh, Yet we can we can get our expectations wrong where we think, oh, God is supposed to make my day go excellently where nothing goes wrong and every little challenge, he saves me from it somehow. Well, we're going to talk about this throughout, but a lot of times we get our expectations twisted and we'll read a passage and we'll say, yeah, see, I'm supposed to just rely on God and he's going to make it all better, uh, like immediately. Well, a lot of times we mistake the promises of salvation or of comforting or of resolution 
as things that were supposed to be immediately fulfilled. But a lot of this is quite looking ahead to some future time, as we just read uh, previously at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's back in 1 Peter 1, uh, verse 7. He says that you, you know, the, the test of genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, you know, some people think Jesus has not yet been revealed, uh, even after all this time later, after that was written. Others do think he was revealed, and that's, you know, big, big can of worms. It's totally worthy of our time to look into that, but not today. So uh, the point is that for these people, they had to live through hard times before they would get to that time of deliverance uh, when Jesus would return, when he would come back. So let's talk some, uh, what are you supposed to be like then? If if being here is on purpose a a time of testing, a time of refining, a time of growing and maturing and um, becoming complete in every way and not lacking in our characters. You know, we've been talking about this since episode one, about learning to live in the image of God, what that means, how it works. Well, so what are we supposed to be like in this difficult world? Let's talk for a few minutes about the parable of the sower. I'm going to move to Matthew 13. I'm starting in verse 18. So this is Jesus speaking. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. Now he's explaining the parable he'd already told them. Uh, you remember about the farmer went out to sow his seed, and some fell on the, the hard pathway, some fell in the good soil, and some fell among the weeds and so forth. And so there's three different outcomes in this story. So here he's saying that um, that what was sown along the path, you know, that's the hardened ground that gets mashed down all the time from people walking on it. He said uh, the evil one comes and snatches away. You know, the idea of the, the seed doesn't get down into the soil, and birds can come eat it. They can see it very easily and snatch it up and so forth. Okay. So as for what was sown on rocky ground, uh, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. So this is the particular point I wanted to get at here the people who have accepted Christianity or, you know, Jesus' teachings, or at least to some extent, who said, yeah, Jesus is important. I want that to be part of my life and so forth, but who are lacking some sort of inward quality where that uh, can really take root and grow well. So he's, he calls this rocky ground rather than, you know, well-tilled soil. And so there's problems inside that keep it, keep the message from taking full root. And so they endure for a while. They may be happy about it, but when hard times come, uh, quote, um, immediately he falls away, end quote. And he goes on, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of, and, uh, of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. And from what was sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it 
He indeed bears uh, fruit and yields. Uh, in one case, a hundredfold, and another 60, and another 30. And I'm, I'm so glad this part is in here because not everybody is similarly gifted with whatever kinds of personality traits they may have or cognitive aptitudes or things like this. And you know this, the same way that not everybody is equally gifted when it comes to athletics. Some people are just built better for it than others. It's the same somewhat with the mind. Although the stuff that Jesus demands of us, we can all do that with our minds, uh, I think. Are there some exceptions, people with brain injuries or things like that? Well, that's above my pay grade on being smart enough to know how God would handle all of that. But I do know that God is the perfect judge. And so he knows how to uh, judge people fairly and justly and lovingly and so forth. Anyway, the idea that we're going to be differently productive, one person to the next, even if we have a good heart, that's something we need to get used to. Uh, this idea, particularly though, about the rocky soil that is lacking in the ability to grow good roots in the message of God. I think that's what so many are lacking. This is what Olivia Walton was struggling with here. She did not understand what's the nature of this world and that, yes, tough things are going to happen here. That's part of the general plan. Now, uh, <laughs> what kind of plan is this? Uh, for example, suppose that I drop my kid off at the babysitter so I can go run some errands. And so I have a plan for the kid to stay there for two hours, then I'll come back and get them. Well, okay, so my kid could say, yeah, it's my dad's plan that I'm here. Does this mean that the kid should think that every single thing that happens while he's there at the babysitter is also part of my specific plan? For instance, another kid may push him down. And should my kid say, oh, my dad uh, brought me here so I could be pushed down by you. My dad wants me to suffer this uh, harm from you. Or is it more accurate to say, well, my dad put me here trusting overall that I could make it through my time here? and that it wouldn't be too dangerous to me, uh, although he didn't plan out this specific thing that would happen to me, right? That's, this is going to be a huge question because some people deal with scriptures differently from others. Some want to go to Romans 8, and we know that uh, all things happen for the good of those who, uh, you know. Well, okay, you know there's different ways to read that, right? <laughs> and so you can try to orchestrate some scheme where every flat tire and every missed phone call is all somehow on purpose. And well, you see, Jack, God works in mysterious ways and it, it all works out. Or you could say, well, look, God put us in this world with its various troubles and how we handle it. God's paying attention. And at the end, he will meet with us and tell us how he thinks we did and whether we pleased him or not. Right. So I know people are going to be very divided on how they interpret that. Uh, a lot of them will have scripture. A lot of them won't have enough scripture. Or they will be having to skip some scriptures in order to make sense of it the way that they want to make sense of it. Anyway, moving on. Matthew 24, uh, Jesus is in this uh, sort of barn burner of a chapter. He's predicting his second coming and the judgment and things like this. 
And he tells his apostles uh, at one point in verse 9, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you'll be hated by all nations for my namesake. So look at that. I mean, this is definitely part of his specific uh, plan for them, or at least this this generalized statement about what the apostles should expect, even down to they would be put to death. Well, were all of them put to death? No. Not all of them. Many were, but not all. And so we have to learn how to handle statements like this, especially when we're informed by later historical accounts of what happened. Um, Pardon the noise here. It's a windy day outside, and that's the wind rattling the doors on the building. Uh, He says, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. So here's part of his general plan uh, for evangelizing the nations during that generation And he knows that there's going to be hatred aimed at the people. Is this a picture of the perfect world, the fairy tale existence where the apostles just go around uh, with birds tweeting and the butterflies fluttering and such, and everybody's happy about everything they say? No, not at all. Not even for the apostles is this fairy tale world true, and much less for the other uh, non-apostle Christians of that day. Here's a great statement in Acts 14. Uh, I'm going to read 21 through 22. Uh, When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the apostles, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, here we go, that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So this is a generalized statement made by these apostles who were teaching. And they were telling people in general, you're going to have many tribulations on your way into the kingdom of God. You don't get there easy. And there are a lot of passages like this. There are passages in the extra biblical books that we're not supposed to read. (laughs) Because that's not in the Bible. Uh, Although it informed the people who wrote the Bible in many cases, and they alluded to it and said similar things themselves and all that. But yeah, you're not supposed to read that, Jack. Uh, So anyway, uh, but this is also throughout the Bible. So I've got a note here about don't mistake the timing of the peace. Now, I'm shifting gears. The idea is about, is there relief that's promised to believers? Oh, you bet. But a lot of times we can mistake those promises as being for the present when they're actually for later. Here's an example from Romans 2, starting in verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Notice he hadn't already given it. It was going to happen later for these people to whom Paul was writing. Uh, But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, Uh, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. So this idea that, yeah, some are going to be punished and some will have peace. Well, here's a question. When was that peace supposed to come? Well, it's at the time 
of the judgment. This was future to the people Paul was writing to. He wasn't telling them, you have already found this peace. No, they knew it was future. But a lot of times, if we're not being cognitively careful, we may read passages like this and say, yeah, peace for everyone who does good. I do good, therefore I should have peaceful life, so something must be terribly wrong when my neighbors say I'm a heretic and when they picket my church or when they, you know, whatever. Um, when when they say I, I don't understand Jesus or I'm not loving or I don't understand the grace of God or whatever uh, kinds of things, well, that's no good. I should have peace and this shouldn't be happening. What's wrong? God, why is God letting this happen to me? You know, this sort of thing. In Romans 8, there is uh, a passage that I think is fabulously important and it is very much misunderstood. Uh, but let's just dive in and see where this goes. Romans eight thirty one. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, didn't Paul have people against him? Yes. And we all know it. These are famous accounts. It's all throughout the New Testament. So is God here saying that no one can be against you? Well, that would be ridiculous, and he would know better. So really, what's he talking about? He's talking about the big picture of things, the end of the day, the end of the story. Uh, he goes on in verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Notice this is future, right? He doesn't say he has already given us all things. And then here's another note before we go on. This word all, we're going to get ourselves in trouble if we take this slavishly literal uh, uh, attitude of the, the absolute language here. Well, it says all things, therefore he should give me a battleship because I think they're cool and I've always wanted a battleship. Well, don't count on that, <laughs> right? Uh, I think that here's a good rule of thumb. It may sound stupid to you, but when a New Testament writer uses the word all, I think the best way to understand that is all of whatever I'm talking about. They were not as prone to absolute language, I believe, as we are in our culture. And if we assume that they would use words like this the way we do, uh, we're going to get ourselves in trouble. And uh, this is a fine example. For, ex uh, for example, if uh, suppose I read, uh, he will graciously give us all things. And I say, oh, well, that means he's going to give you eternity in the lake of fire. And you would think, no, that's crazy, Jack. The, the good people go to heaven. And I'd say, well, it says all things, right? If I wanted to play this game and make the, the silly argument. So you have to use some common sense as you read these things. But he goes on, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Jesus Christ is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? And, of course, this is a rhetorical question, the answer to which we understand to be no. These things should not separate us from the love of Christ. And so Olivia Walton was feeling quite abandoned, rejected, 
um, left out by God, ignored by God. Why should these kids be suffering these things? This isn't right. This world isn't right. God should do something about this. Well, uh, she's feeling separated, right? A loving God, you know, uh, how does it go? How can a loving God allow suffering in this world? Well, uh, to be blunt about it, that's the kind of question that dumb people ask. (laughs) (laughs) That is quite blunt, isn't it? It's a foolish question. Uh, And let me take a quick stab at it while I'm here. If God did not allow people to do bad things, harmful things, foolish things, things that get ourselves into trouble, things that hurt others, if he did not allow that, how many people do you think would curse God for that? I want to kill my brother, but every time I raise my hand, my, my arm freezes in the air. I can't, I can't stab him with the knife or hit him with the rock or with the bat. I'm, I'm like an angel comes and freezes my muscles, so I just can't do it. Well, people would curse God for that. So he gives you the latitude to do wrong things, and then you curse him for putting you in a world where people can do wrong things. You see, this is, uh, this is twisted thinking. It's not reasonable. So he, he goes on, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or dis, uh, distress or persecution or famine or, famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, so here's a question. What about hard times? When I'm going through hard times and I wish God would come just make it all better, make it go away, does this mean I'm separated from his love? No. Does it mean I'm separated from his grace? No. Does it mean that God doesn't care about me? No. Does it mean I'm in sin and God isn't hearing my prayers? And we'll talk about that as we go, because a lot of people make a cognitive error when it comes to that Isaiah 59 passage. It's about your sins have separated you from God. And that is that they think anytime you don't get what you want from God, it's because you must be sinning. There's sin in the camp, bro. Okay, so this idea that we are more than conquerors through Jesus and nothing can separate us from his love. Well, what about his discipline? If he's put us in this world uh, where we need to navigate the hurdles and avoid the traps or get out of the ones we found ourselves getting into, Uh, Does this mean we are separated from his love? No. It does not. My college friend Don Esri told me once, and I've never vetted this. I'm going to go with Don here and trust this. Uh, If if this happens to be false, uh, please somebody let me know. Uh, I think he'd been a Boy Scout and was quite the nature lover. And he told me about eagles and how the young eagle is born in the nest 
now hatched, that is, and uh, how they get fed and taken care of in every way by one or more of the parents. And um, then one day, the I'm assuming it was the mother, I don't, I don't know, maybe the father, but the father comes back to the nest and the young eaglets are there. They've been flapping their wings and such, and they're finally ready to fly, but they don't know this. And the way he put it to me, as I recall, was that the, uh, the parent will start this sort of violent dance, flapping the wings, squawking, you know, whatever. <laughs> and the kids are like, hey, what's up with mom? Right? And, and uh, eventually they, they push the uh, eaglets out of the nest. And, of course, the Aries are built high. And so there's a lot of falling to be done once you're pushed out. Uh, or, of course, along the way, you could learn how to fly. And, of course, you know, by nature, they already have the uh, instinct to be able to do this. And so now's the time to do it. And uh, so the idea, I remember uh, Don sharing this, that uh, it was, I'm sure it seemed very rude to the kids. Hey, what's up with this? I was doing just fine waiting on my meal. Now they come back and they don't have food this time. They kicked me out of the nest. Well, okay, it's time to fly or die, right? <laughs> Crash to the ground or spread those wings on the way out and let's get going. And so it must seem quite rude. You know, you think about the, uh, the calf that is born or the, um, the pony or the, the young zebra, the gazelle. These uh, creatures are standing, I believe, within minutes of being born. They're able to walk right away. Um, they're not, you know, we would tend to coddle a baby. Of course, human babies are quite different. They're uh, quite different capabilities when they're born uh, in the lower sort of way with regard to walking. And so we might think it rude. Well, quit making that baby try to stand up. You know, that's just a baby, right? Well, not every species is like our species. And what we may think was, is rude and unusual may be, for some other species, quite the loving thing to do. Like, if you don't teach that um, fawn to stand up right away, then uh, he or she is going to be quite vulnerable to attack from a predator. Because in the real world, there are predators, right? So we may think, well, that's unkind. That's unloving. That's not very gracious <laughs> to make that kid get up and walk right away. And I'm talking about the, you know, the kid animal, the goat or the, or the fawn or, or the colt or something. So we may get in our minds that, no, this isn't right. This world should be all nice and tender and, and green and warm for everybody all the time in every way, and, and something has gone terribly wrong when it's not. But God seems to be thinking throughout these scriptures that, no, I put you here on purpose. Yeah, it's a tough place. Yeah, you're going to grow and learn if you're uh, smart, if you want to be wise, if you want to be like me and like Jesus, you're going to learn how to do that. So uh, Romans 12 goes on with some more in a similar vein, starting in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Now, the idea here is uh, here you are, you believer, in a world of not believers or not so good at being believers and such in the difficulties of the world. So bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Uh, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. 
Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, and catch this line, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not, over, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul knows, and so does God, Jesus, that the believers are in a rough and nasty world. And he's telling them, look, when you're here, here's how you're supposed to carry on. They were to live contrary to the world, and we could go on and on for hours with passages about that. It's all over the text. If you want to find it, it's in there. You can find it every day. If you don't want to hear it, well, you've already turned this off already. <laughs> so it's, it's a big part of the, of the lesson. Uh, Revelation 2, verse 10. This is uh, Jesus uh, sending a letter through John uh, to the Christians in various congregations. And look what he says in this particular spot. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. This would make a lot of people today very uncomfortable. He's telling Christians in the first century that, that they're about to suffer something. And that the devil is involved, he'll throw them in the prison. Well, does that mean literally like they're going to jail? Or does this mean uh, prison like in Hades, uh, Sheol, the underworld, that maybe they were going to die and be there for a short time until he'd come get them out or something like this? But he says, you're going to have tribulation for 10 days. Well, again, we don't know. Is that like a literal 10 days or, you know, how are we figuring this? Well, that's quite a different study and, and um, a lot to be considered there. But the main message, you're going to have tribulation. It's going to be on purpose. The devil's doing this on purpose to you, and you're going to suffer. But you be faithful unto death. Don't go back on your faith in God. And if you don't, I'll give you the crown of life. So there's your eternal life. There's your reward for staying faithful. Well, a lot of people, again, won't like this. They'll say, no, no, it's, it's supposed to be all great. And, you know, like my church, it's, it's supposed to be all, you know, unified and loving and warm. And, and we greet people with open arms. And, and so when there's disagreement at church, oh, I just hate it, right? Well, yeah, okay, hating it, that's one thing. But I'm going to quit. I'm going to uh, quit believing in God. Oh, how could a loving God let this kind of thing go on? Well, that's crazy talk. How could humans let this kind of thing go on? You know, we could put a stop to so much of it, even in our government. We could have such a cleaner, uh, more ruly government if we wanted, but we just don't care. Same with the church. You know, the quality control of what goes on at church could be better and better. Am I saying flawless? No, no, I'm not saying that. 
but it could be so much better than what most searches do most of the time, but we let it stay where it is. And so, and, and yet so many get this idea that everything's supposed to be good and, and easy and easygoing and, and calm and, you know, easy. <laughs> oh, I've already said easy, haven't I? <laughs> so uh, these are misconceptions. I'm reminded of the poem by Langston Hughes that I remember uh, my seventh grade English teacher reading this to us. And uh, I believe she'd said it was uh, the idea was from a slave mother to her son. It's called mother to son. And I won't attempt the dialect here, but she says, well, son, I'll tell you, life for me ain't been no crystal stair. It had tacks in it and splinters and boards torn up and places with no carpet on the floor bare. But all the time I've been a climbing on and reaching landings and turning corners and sometimes going in the dark where there ain't been no light. So, boy, don't you turn back. Don't you sit down on the steps because you find it's kind of hard. Don't you fall now, for I's still going, honey. I's still climbing, and life for me ain't been no crystal stair. And I remember that from seventh grade. And not that this from memory, I just read it to you. But uh, just that, that one-liner about, you know, this is not easy. And it's not supposed to be easy. Now, of course, this if the mother here was a slave, well, that's uh, not supposed to happen here either, and yet it did. But even if slavery is uh, done away with, as it is at least chattel slavery, there's still all kinds of other slavery that goes on, our financial slavery to the various institutions and the high taxation and all this kind of thing. And, uh, you know, the violations of our human rights done in the name of saving us from dangers and all this kind of stuff. Uh, there's misinformation. There's lying, cheating, and stealing going on. Constant political haranguing and the false accusations. And the true ones that are never uh, prosecuted. Oh, boy. It's just a mess. And God knows this. This is no surprise to God. Yet a lot of people have been surprised. They have struggled. Well, what does this mean? This can't be right, can it? Think about those eaglets. What's up with Dad? <laughs> this this isn't right. What's he doing flapping around and squawking at me? You know, hitting me with his wings. <laughs> Is he smoking crack? Right? Well, no, son. That's part of nature. You don't understand it yet. But now's the day you learn to fly. Right? That's part of the plan. Uh, Job dealt with these kinds of things. You know, and you can look at Job and wonder whether he's got a cynical view or not. But he, he is fairly reliable in what he says. If you study the whole book, you have to be a bit more careful about what his friends say. But a lot of what Job says is pretty well informed. And in uh, chapter 14, verse 1, he says, uh, in just the middle of a line, it says, a man who was born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. So that's his view of life, uh, at least at that moment. Of course, you know, he's in the middle of a lot of suffering. Uh, at the end of the st story and at the beginning, when he's in joyful times, he's probably not sitting around saying this kind of stuff. Uh, yet it is true. There is much trouble. So Psalm 10, verse 1. Don't we deal with this? 
Listen to this. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Now, I've not studied this psalm at length. I did copy the whole thing down. I'm not going to read it now. But I just wanted to point out the question that for a long time, people have wondered about this. Why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Of course, God hides himself from us all the time. You know, on your happiest day at your wedding, uh, God does not come down and, and make a personal appearance in person and uh, sit on the front row of your wedding and you know clap when you walk down the aisle. He doesn't do that. And per- <laughs> perhaps you have noticed this. If not, uh, call me. I'll, I'll walk you through it. <laughs> so uh, Jesus does not uh, show up at your church. Um, he just doesn't. And so... Uh, even at at your best times, even at the worst times. And so many find themselves then, well, I'm praying and I don't feel like I'm getting an answer. Well, where's the promise that you're supposed to? Where does it say, whenever you're in trouble, pray and God will change the situation so that you're not in trouble anymore? Where does it say that? Because I don't see that in the Bible. I see some things I could misconstrue if I wanted to, or if I were uncareful. You know, we find one-liners like here's from Psalm 20. uh, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about, right? Uh, You can find a passage like that and say, yeah, see, that's what faithful people should be thinking. Yeah, but is this a promise that God will protect every believer from all troubles for all time. We definitely have promises about the afterlife and what goes on there. There were even some promises about the Jews being restored to the land, which I believe actually already happened. I believe that in the first century, starting in Acts 2, when they're coming back to Jerusalem there, that they were restored into the land and lived out that generation there. Uh including the dead who rose in Matthew 27, 51 through 53 or so. I believe they stayed there. Uh, That's controversial. You won't find many people talking about it, which is sad, because I believe we could learn a lot about that if we weren't scared to look into it. But uh, anyway, there's sort of a radical view of mine that uh, some may find laughable. Uh, Every once in a while, somebody says, you may be onto something there, Jack. So uh, anyway, this idea, well, is God... God going to answer me in my trouble? So let's talk some about some special things. Um, I want to jump forward and talk about uh, the sun and the moon and Joshua. Here, here is a passage, uh, and I, perhaps we've talked about this before. But um, in Joshua 10, starting in verse 12, and, you know, here's a, a big uh, battle with the Amorites, you know, between the Jews and the Hebrews and Amorites. And it says, On the day that the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, uh, Son, stand still over Gibeon and you moon uh, over the valley of Aijalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies as it is written in the book of Jasher. 
The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down for about a full day. There has never been a day like it before or since. A day, listen to this, when the Lord listened to a human being. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Okay, so here we have some battle scene and uh, something spectacular is happening here. And it's happening at the command of Joshua, who is a human. Uh, he's been put in charge of Israel, right? So uh, the author says, uh, you know, this was a pretty special situation because this stuff doesn't happen. And he says, there's never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a human being. So surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. All right. And so, no, I think before we leave this, I think it's fascinating, this whole sun and moon business. Uh, and I am very suspicious that this is not meant to be a literal account. Am I suspicious because I think it would be impossible? Well, no, I don't believe it would be impossible for God to make that happen. Uh, it would require suspending physics as we know it. Otherwise, uh, if the sun and moon just stopped their motion, um, there would be all kind of catastrophic uh, mayhem on the earth and probably everybody would die. Okay, so if you're going to literally suspend the sun and the moon, boy, you've got to punch a, button, a bunch of other physics buttons to keep that from being a catastrophe. So I suspect that this is actually a reference to lesser Elohim that were in service of God that were appointed in Genesis 1, 14 through 19 or so. That whole passage about the two great lights, uh, greater one to rule the day, lesser one to rule the night. I do strongly suspect that this is God telling us in figurative language about some of the uh, powerful angels that he put in charge of some things and they were sort of overseeing type of wandering the earth looking at what's going on uh, making sure that things happened uh, within certain parameters that God had given them so you'll find they get involved in battles and such and uh, here's an example of that if I'm right if I'm wrong um, then it's hard to know why uh, for instance, why would you want the sun up for a battle to, to stay longer? Well, okay, so you can pursue your enemies. Fine. Why the moon, though? If the sun's going to stay up all night, well, then it's not night, it's day. So what difference does it make to have the moon out? Indeed, when the moon is out in the daytime and you're out mowing your grass, do you say, wow, you know, Something's different. It's so extra bright out here. I just can't hardly stand it. Where are my sunglasses? <laughs> uh, no, if you don't look up, you're not going to know at all that the moon's out. So, you know, the traditional interpretation of this passage just sort of shrugs its shoulders and moves on along. Nothing to see here, folks. But I do think this may have been about these two powerful angels having something to do with the outcome of this battle. Uh, but the reason I want to talk about this one is because of the idea that God listened to a man. God did what the man thought needed doing. Now, and our, we're not told, was this like a prophetic utterance by Joshua? Had he been told to ask for this 
you know, like Moses was told, uh, you raise your staff and this and that will happen and so forth. Well, is this one of those things? Well, don't know. We're not told. But this idea that God would listen to them. Well, this happens again, sort of, kind of, in Daniel 3. And I wanted to read about, <laughs> I have to laugh, about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, and, of course, Abednego is nearly universally mispronounced uh, as Abednego. And so I just have to laugh about that. Okay, so Daniel 3, verse 15 uh, these three had been told they had better bow down when they hear the music, bow down to this great statue of the king. And they said, nah, not going to do it. And the king's like, no, really, you better. Nah, not going to do it. Okay, look, I'm telling you, you know, one more time when it happens, if you don't bow down, then, you know, so forth. So the king's going on. He says, now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Oh, I love that passage because this guy totally knows about the the angels who had been you know, put in charge over the nations and, and things like that. And so he's saying there is no God that's going to be able to save you from me. Uh, so it goes on. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Now, I love this. Uh, they had been told by God. You can look at Deuteronomy 4.19 that, hey, these other gods, you're not to bow down to them and worship them. They're for everybody, but uh, I am Israel's God. You only bow down and worship me. So they were obeying God when they told this king that they would not uh, uh, worship his God. So uh, he says, well, if you don't, I'm going to kill you. So uh, what happens here, though, l listen again to verse 17. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. Oh, this is fantastic because it's, it's just a, a matter of fact. We know that Yahweh has the ability to stop this from happening. And see, Olivia Walton was sort of going off on the same thing. Well, God could stop all this, you know, this war, this uh shattering of families and the, the killing of people and the shipping off of the kids to safe places. God could put a stop to all this. And indeed he could, she's totally right. So here they are. They're being quite rational about this. We know that God can, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. Well, uh, yeah, but when they knew that they would not be eternally, uh, condemned to live under the tyranny of Nebuchadnezzar, but they didn't know when they were going to be delivered from that. But they knew they would in time. But they go on. But even if he does not, we want you to know we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. This is a fantastic story. It is so instructive to us. That Look, I don't know the grand scheme of things. I know I'm getting out of here one day. 
that much I understand. God's going to deliver me into eternal life if I'm faithful. And speaking of being faithful, I'm going to be faithful right now. I'm not going to disobey God right now by uh, bowing down to your image. Not going to do it. See, these guys had root. They ran into serious trouble here. They had some roots. They had let it sink into their minds. They were doing the right kind of thinking. They were rational about it. Yes, we know God's able, uh, and we know God will deliver us eventually. Uh, but even if he doesn't deliver us right now from this fire, so what? We're still going to do what God said to do. You see? That's a fantastic thing. Now, as it turns out, did God listen to these guys? That day, uh, yes, he did. They get thrown into the fire. Nebuchadnezzar says, uh, wasn't it three guys I threw in there because, gee, it sure looks like there's four. Oh, and the fourth one looks sort of like, you know, son of God. <laughs> so uh, they, they were indeed delivered from the fire and things worked out great for them. Uh, but they knew that this deliverance might not be a thing that uh, they could count on that day. They, they were not prepared to go off pouting if they should get thrown in that fire and die. They knew that, that, look, we're subjects of God. He's put us here for his own purposes, and however it works out, it doesn't matter. We're going to be faithful to God, and we know he will deliver us in the end. They had the perfect attitude about this. They were totally mature in the way they looked at this. They were not begrudging. Well, how could God get us in this situation? You know, Where is God? Why is he not going to get us out? And so this is just... I think such a useful story and such an encouraging story to people who want to have a mature attitude. So we have this idea that God listens to Joshua with the whole sun and moon stopping business. Here he listens to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and saves them from this fire. Okay, but does God always listen to people? Surely you have prayed just like me. Oh, God, I need money for this. Oh, God, uh, please let me not let me get over this sickness that I brought upon myself by living stupidly with what I eat. Right. Uh, well, should you expect God to answer all of that to your satisfaction? Or should you think, well, OK, I was stupid. I got myself in trouble and I need to try to you know, get myself out and start eating right or you know, quit making the mistake, whatever. Uh, so I want to talk about uh, Jesus and whether God listened to him all the time. And so I hope you'll pardon me as I'm scrolling through my notes here about this. A lot of times when people don't get answers to their prayers, they make a cognitive error. They've learned this from the pulpit. And somebody will go to Isaiah 59, verse 1 and 2. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Hey, God is able to save us. And he goes on, Nor his ear too dull to hear, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. I've heard this preached a lot of times. And invariably, 
it was the reason that you didn't get what you asked for in prayer. Well, you must be sinning, bro. But it does not say that. This was written to specific people in a specific set of circumstances at a specific time. And the message to them that day was, you're not getting what you want because God's mad at you. You're separated from God. You're not right with God. That was the answer to them that day. Does that mean that that's the answer to all of us all the time? No. It does not. That's bad thinking. It's a bad conclusion. It is not supported by all the evidence. It is not reasonable. Is sin one reason that God might not listen to somebody? Sure. We see it right here. But is it the only reason? So with that in mind, let's talk about Jesus. In John 9, uh, <laughs> this great story about the man who's uh, healed from blindness and and they want to go after Jesus for doing this and they're questioning the man. <laughs> and so they're asking him all about Jesus and, you know, what did he do? How did it happen? Where is the guy and all this? It says in John 9, verse 30, the man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you are steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Okay. Why are we talking about this man? It's the thing he says about Jesus couldn't have done this if he weren't from God. And God listens to him. He says, we know God does not listen to sinners. Now, how would he know that? Well, how about the passage we just read, Isaiah 59, 1 and 2? Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. The guy's probably alluding to this very passage. So we know that God does not listen to sinners, right? Yeah, well, God listened to Jesus, and he was known for this. Um, uh, listen to this. Um, in uh, Matthew 8, 27, the men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and waves obey him. This is when he'd calmed the sea, calmed the storm. Or Mark uh, 1, 27. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. So, you know, the wind and waves had listened to Jesus, so figuratively speaking, and so did the evil spirits. They were obeying Jesus. So you have this uh, special thing going on with God and Jesus. And, of course, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And they were indeed. All right, so he goes on, uh, like Jesus uh, says in John 11. So let's look at God listening to Jesus. We want to talk about the, um, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And uh, if you know Lazarus had been sick, Jesus was summoned, and he says, well, we're not going to go right away because we know he wanted Lazarus to go ahead and die so that he could raise him from the dead and demonstrate some things to people about that. Well, when Jesus gets there, after Lazarus has already died, Martha says to Jesus, and this is 
uh, John eleven twenty one. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. You see, she knows that God listens to Jesus. They already knew this. This was very well established. Because God and Jesus, they've got this thing going on, right? So a little later in verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. You remember the, uh, there's an old song, he could have called 10,000 angels. The idea that when Jesus is on the cross, you know, he could have called out and been saved. Well, he was not saved from that. We're going to talk about uh, that in a minute because here's a, a, an opportunity. Here's an occasion on which this Jesus, who had this great relationship with God, this interactive thing going back and forth all the time, where God listened to Jesus like God did not listen to normal humans most of the time, uh, yet when it came time to his for his crucifixion, he calls out and God does not answer. And we'll talk about that in a bit. But the point is that there's a reason for that. And um, we'll get into that. But I want to look first at the apostles because something also very special went on there. Uh, Jesus had trained these men for three years, three and a half years, something like that. And he gave them some special status. In John 14, 13, he tells them, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So in other words, we're listening to you. You know, and again, this is not, uh, I promise to give you a Ferrari if you ask for it. It was things, you know, in my name, things that Jesus himself would have done, part of his own mission and such. That's the idea here. And so uh, going on in John fifteen sixteen. This is at the Last Supper. He says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. There again, that promise that you, you're going to be listened to. You're going to be interacted with uh, as you go along this mission that I'm giving you. In John 16, 23, In that day you will ask nothing of me, Truly, truly, I say, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. And in Matthew 21, 22, and whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. These are things he told his apostles. Now, we covered this a lot in the uh, You Are Not an Apostle episode. The prayers he made to them were many times special and not meant for all believers for all time and all situations. And this is a case where Jesus is setting these particular men up in this very special role 
that they would live for their lifetime. There was no uh, succession of the apostles. It's not taught anywhere. A lot of churches will assume that. I say a lot. It's actually quite a few. Uh, but they will assume, oh, yes, the apostleship goes on today. Well, where is that written? Where's the promise given? So Jesus had made all these promises to them. They had its very special role. They were going to be the judges over Israel for that generation. They would be the ones writing the scriptures, teaching the world about uh, Jesus' message and all that. Pardon me, I'm out of breath. <laughs> I actually just had an appointment and helped somebody load some furniture. So I left the mic running the whole time. I will edit out that 10 minutes of uh, furniture moving. Okay, so uh, this idea of asking God for things in prayer, and should we expect to receive them or not? Many will assume, yes, 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 of course you should. That's the faithful way to think. Well, is it faithful if you don't have a promise to that effect? Because I don't know where it's written to anybody but apostles that anything you ask for in prayer, you will receive. I don't know that. Or especially here, like Matthew 21, 22, where we just covered, and whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. We've talked about this before. How many people go home at the end of the day saying, well, I guess I don't have enough faith because I didn't get what I asked for. But that promise is not to you. And so uh, maybe we're just like ordinary humans, ordinary believers that don't play this particularly special role in the history of the world. And God does not listen to us like he does to Joshua in that one instance or to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in another or like he did to Jesus in practically every instance, uh, or like Jesus promised the apostles that they could count on. But they didn't get everything either. Uh, Mark 10, verse 35, now this is before Jesus died, but James and John, um, let's see, uh, and, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now <laughs> Think about that. That's quite a presumptuous uh, thing to say even in the first place. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant. Uh, they, be they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them and said to them, uh, well, I'm not going to read that. He's talking about how to have good attitudes and such, not lord it over people. But this idea that they might want a thing that it wasn't the time for and it wasn't the place for, it was already decided, it wasn't for Jesus to grant, that was not part of the business, it's not part of what they're doing here. Uh, the apostles' mission on earth was not about their seating place in heaven, it 
that's something different, that's special, that's separate from this. Well, could we have the same attitude where we realize, oh, the troubles that I go through in this life, it's not God's uh, aim right now to make my life trouble-free or to deliver me from all the challenges that I face, to get me the job that I want, the money that I think I need, or the money I need to keep up with the financial um, habits that I have, you know, this sort of thing. What if our life here is not about um, asking Santa Claus for what you want and getting it? What if it's not? What if that's not what time it is? These two had asked this question. They were apostles. They would be even like, you know, fully official apostles later, uh, gifted and such. And, but they didn't get what they wanted. Hebrews 7, or Hebrews 5, 7, says this one thing about Jesus. Uh, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, complete, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, and was designated by God to be high priest on the order of Melchizedek. Notice that Jesus was not presented with his final role, his glorified high priest uh, role, uh, before he suffered and became complete. He did the suffering first. Well, this is the whole appeal of Hebrews here is, hey, you people need to endure too. You need to submit to the, the challenges, to the opportunities to grow and to make right choices, to build your characters and all this, to live in the image. You need to submit to that just like Jesus needed to submit to it. And look what he got. He got this amazing final reward for it. And you'll be rewarded too. You know, this is the overall view of Hebrews. It's about people who are looking for a country not their own. And now I'm referring to the whole discussion in chapters 11 and 12 of Hebrews. It was not for people who wanted their country to be made into heaven you know, heaven on earth. God, please make all the bad guys quit being bad guys in our government. God, please make all the criminals in the street quit being criminals and quit being a threat to people. You know, uh, a lot of people think that way here, but this was never promised to you. Jesus at Gethsemane, uh, Luke 22, verse 42, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. These are famous words. Surely you know these words. Yet we forget so often. God, I need this money. I need this raise. God, I need this job. God, I, you know, that's a from a chorus line, actually. Oh, God, I need this job. <laughs> so, there's my Broadway singing for you. All right. So we think it's God's job to give us the stuff that we think we need. Well, don't be surprised if God has a hands-off approach to a lot of that. 
You remember that time that the brothers are arguing and they go to Jesus, you know, the, uh, the Lord settle this with my brother. He won't give me, you know, whatever. And Jesus looks at him like, who made me a judge over your estate? That's not my job. That's not what I'm here to do. Why are you coming to me for this? Right? Well, could it be that we have unrealistic expectations about how things are supposed to work? Yes, it happens a lot. And you got to understand, if you're going to be a cognitive slash moral miser as a preacher, and you just want to keep people in the seats, you want to keep the pews filled, you want to keep those collection plates filled up with money, yeah, make a bunch of promises to people. Oh, he'll wipe away every tear. You'll become very happy and fulfilled life, and your diseases will go away, and the troubles in your life will go away, and your troubled children, all their troubles will go away. You can overplay all of that. Am I saying that um, there's no hope for a better life as a Christian? Oh, no, I'm not saying that at all. And even about the miracles that are so often talked about, let me say this for the record. I believe 100% in the miracles in the Bible. 100%. Now, some of them need some interpretation. Uh, This thing with the sun and moon standing still. Suppose I'm right, and those are about lesser Elohim. They're about, you know, angel types that listened to Joshua's thing, and they, they stopped and helped win that battle that day. Well, is that a miracle? Uh, not in the natural sense, if these were like beings, but still uh, things that didn't normally happen would have happened for Joshua. Or suppose I'm wrong, and it is about the literal sun and moon, even though it's hard to understand why they needed to stop. If you needed the daylight, fine, but the sun and the moon, and these places are about like you know 10 miles apart. So the sun standing over the one place, the moon over the other. Mm, Okay, that's problematic to me, and I won't bore you with the details of that. But suppose I'm wrong, and it's about that. Well, would that be a miraculous thing? Oh, yeah, that's like a big-time, you know, astrophysics kind of miracle. And so, okay, well, I totally believe that one or the other happened, or perhaps some third interpretation that I haven't yet figured out to wonder about. Uh, but does that mean that if I go out and pray the same thing today, for example, let's say I'm helping one of my Montana wheat farmer friends get a harvest in uh, while it's still, you know, before a big rain comes. Well, what if I pray, God, uh, please keep the sun up, you know, for a day straight so we can work all night and um, please hold off the weather and, you know, calm the storm and all this. Well, should I expect God is going to Uh, comply with that, that he's going to oblige me. Well, I have no promise from God, and this is where I'm trying to get you to be rational and honest and responsible about your expectations regarding miraculous things and interactions from God. So Jesus has this one quality where he says, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became 
like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Well, he's going through a very, very hard time. And the answer he gets is, No, I'm not going to intercede. I'm not going to save you from this death. There's a reason for it. And you know the reasons. And this is the centralmost fact of the whole Bible story, that Jesus died uh, so that we might live and live eternally. Well, if he were willing to submit himself and to suffer things he would rather not have suffered, for the sake of pleasing God in these things and of helping people in these things, then really, who are we? And I love Olivia Walton, don't get me wrong, but who are we to take that position? Well, God, and I so wish I had a quotation for you, and I don't, but basically she's saying God is in the wrong for not stopping this. That's a really big deal. It is so easy for us to get our heads screwed on funny and to think this world should revolve around us. God should become our errand boy, our servant, the solver of all of our problems. And we get cross or sullen or disappointed, depressed, or we turn it on ourselves, often with the help of people that don't understand Isaiah 59 very well, and we say, ah, oh, it's because of sin that he's not answering your prayers. Well, hold on there, Boudreaux. Time out. That is not the only possible explanation. It could be that you're asking something that is not supposed to be happening in this time. It's not the business of why you're here. People look at me like I'm an idiot. But when I stand back and look at the big picture of the Bible and of the extra-biblical works, like, for instance, some of the apocryphal works that you'll find in the Catholic Bible, when I look at other works that aren't there either, like the book of Enoch, or that is one Enoch, two Enoch, other uh, so-called pseudepigraphical books, where we, whoever's name is on it may not be the true name of whoever wrote it, or at least so some would say. Well, when I look at all of this literature the literature of the culture that produced the Bible. It is very easy to get the idea that this earth is a boot camp. That God has people born here and he's able to see by how they live here whether they are the right kinds of citizens for that holy city, the heavenly Jerusalem where eternal life is played out. That's what I think it is. A lot of people uh, find this very awkward. Like, oh, no, uh, that, don't, that doesn't sound right, bro. That doesn't feel right. Well, I've never heard that before. That must be wrong. Hmm. Well, yeah, you may have a fellowship that's all slathered up in grace all the time. And I don't mean the real grace that teaches us to say no to ungodliness and that causes us to work harder than them all. This is the two things Paul said about that grace. But you might have sort of the twisted um, 
counterfeit kind of grace that says, oh, everything's okay. You're okay no matter what, no matter how you live. There's plenty of forgiveness to go around. God will never refuse to forgive you for whatever, even if it's long-term willful, um, you know, flagrant sin that you're doing knowing full well better, right? It's sort of the limitless grace, this font of ever-flowing, uh, you can't possibly out God's forgiveness. Well, uh, you can. You know, how long shall I put up with you? These kind of words did not come from man. They came from Jesus, right? So uh, if you want a religion that takes all the scriptures into account, well, that's going to be different from if you just pick and choose your favorites from among the red letters, right? You know, bring the little children unto me. Uh, yeah, there's a lot more to Jesus than just that. And so we get really mixed up on what we should be expecting. Well, I want you to think for a minute about a Joe Hebrew who lived, let's say, 100 years before Moses. So he's living in the land of Goshen in Egypt. He's a slave. Uh, things are tough on the people. He's of Hebrew descent. They have some lore in their little subculture there in Egypt. Uh, but what's going on in Joe Hebrew's world? Moses isn't even there yet. There's no law of Moses. There's no sojourn through the desert. There's no tabernacle. There's certainly no temple. There's no kingship. There's no nation of Israel. There is no Jesus. There's no apostles. There's no miracle signs and wonders. So what does this man have in his life that is special? Well, he's here on planet Earth. God put him here, and he has the chance to have eternal life with God in that holy city, that heavenly Jerusalem, after he's done here. That's what's special. And he has the means to choose what he wants, what's important to him, how he will live, how he will respond to the things that happen, whether he will be uh, maintaining a faith in God or not. That's what Joe Hebrew has. And I wonder if we're not in a pretty similar situation to him ourselves. The signs, miracles, and wonders of the apostles are clearly not happening today as they happened in the first century. Now, whatever level of miracles you may think are happening, that's a very debatable thing. And we could talk about that a lot. In fact, I'd like to do that pretty soon because I just heard a very interesting and very regrettable uh, podcast about that with uh, somebody else, another, uh, uh, I see another, but with a Bible scholar and, and a guest scholar, where I think they're making lots of mistakes on the assumptions they make about miracles. But I totally believe in the miracles of the Bible, and I totally believe, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that God could do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, including right now. So if he wants to save me from some you know cancer or something like that that might happen, Oh, he could totally do that. Does he want to? Uh, is he willing to? Is this the kind of thing he wants to do right now in this time in history? Oh, those are totally different questions. And what if the answer is no? What if God does not want to heal me or you or your friend or your dad or some or something? Well, is this going to be okay? Would we approve of the way that God is running the world? Or shall we get mad at him? 
and be sullen. Shall we pout about it? Or do we have the root to carry on in the faith in reverent submission like Jesus? Where we realize, look, I'm just a servant. It is very easy to fret over our 50 years here or our 90 years here or however long it is and the stuff we see and not to take into account fully what it means to have an eternity in a perfect city with God. The world we're in is a shadow of what is to come for the faithful. And the next one is way better than this one. So I think a lot of Christians, unfortunately, spend their time running from trouble rather than facing it and enduring it and overcoming it. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil, but overcome evil with good. I think a lot of people aren't really trying that. They're just trying to sort of cope just to get through somehow and not really to rise above it. And what a shame that is. It's so easy in the popular churches, of course, to get into that mindset because they're just trying to keep people coming and keep those dollars flowing in and all that, keep the seats filled. Yeah, okay, but that's just such a low view of Christianity. It is so much more than that if you read the entire message of God and Jesus and all these scriptures. So this is what I wanted to talk about today. I hope this helps you wrestle with the world and with your expectations about this world. It's certainly worth wrestling with, and it makes a huge difference, the attitude that we have about all these things. So I hope you found this uh, useful. Uh, feel free to write me and let me know what you're thinking. If I've got anything wrong, please let me know about that. I'm always looking to correct errors or oversights or um, you know assumptions and such. So I'd love to have discourse with you about that if you're interested. And I suppose that'll be it for today. So thanks for joining in.